0: We're going to continue uh, the third week of our series called People of the Spirit. And if you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 with me, verse 31. Brother, if you have benefited from this or not, which I hope you have, I certainly have in my own personal studies and communion with the Lord and seeking out what is the truth regarding the person of the Holy Spirit, I myself, just studying this and communion with the Lord, feel just a greater nearness by the power of the Holy Spirit to the Lord. And and I hope that is the effect in your your own life. As I said last week, every one of you has a theology. It, It doesn't matter if, if you have any kind of Christian background, every single person has a theology. And what do you think of God is the most important thing about you, A.W. Tozer said. Everyone has a formulation or a rudimentary way of understanding God and His nature, which determines how they live their life. And there are individuals who have a good theology and there are individuals who have a bad theology. And so that is the question. You all have a theology, but is it good or is it bad? And that's what we talked about last week in regards to the agency of the Holy Spirit, his work in earth, his work through our lives, his ability to convict or to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. We're going to begin here today to look at the Spirit's activity, his work in the believer's life, his active presence, his abiding presence, his indwelling presence within the Christian's life. And and I I want my goal here today is is to make us more alert and, and responsive and, and more understanding of the spirit's uh, dwelling within us. If you are a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit resides within you. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Paul told the Corinthians, "Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not your own." And no one, in Romans 8, 9, no one is a Christian. No one can, can be in Christ except that the Spirit dwells within them. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And I, I want to bring a, a great emphasis to that here today. And, and, and make known to you the wonderful helper and comforter that you have as a privilege of a child of God. Make you more sensitive to the Spirit's work in your life on a daily basis, not just during worship, not just when you come down to pray, but every single waking moment, a communion with the Holy Spirit, which brings Father and Son, and you've been called into this eternal fellowship, this eternal koinonia we looked at in the first week. And I want to make you aware what access you have, what power you have, and what fellowship you have. "...dwelling even within you." Jeremiah 31 and 31 verse through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt... My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know him, know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. The title here today is Another Helper, the Presence, God's Presence in God's People. Another Helper, God's Presence in God's People. Would you help me to pray? Pray for me. Pray for the person to your left and to your right. Lord, help us here today by the power of. ...of your Holy Spirit to receive the truth, this eternal truth that brings life. Help us to be receptive, help us to be sensitive, move in our lives here this afternoon. Give us a greater nearness to your heart, O God, than we've ever had here before. Help us to invite you in on a moment-by-moment basis as we live our lives before you and as you dwell within us. We pray these things in your name... Amen. When Kimberly and I first started dating in 2009, she was going to college at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. How many of you know where that is? Wade went there, he graduated from there. Hunter went there for a little while. But in 2009, Kimmy had gone to Texas State there for a little while, and when we first started dating, we were separated. In bodily presence, she and I were apart. It was a long-distance relationship, and in order to alleviate the pain of not being able to be in the presence of one another, what do you do? You call each other, you text each other. Uh, back then, Skype was really popular. It's not so much popular any day today, but we skyped each other on our computers. Uh, there was Facebook. Any technological means that we had, email we would use that so that we could feel close to each other. We could feel close to each other. and But nothing, nothing ever compared to her coming into my driveway on, a, on particular weekends in her little old Honda uh, Civic. I think it was like a 1998 Honda Civic. She was still driving then. And nothing compared when she would come home and visit when I would see her car come into the driveway, nothing compared. Or when I on occasion would go and visit her in San Marcos and I would pull into the parking lot of her apartment, I'd see her come out. Nothing compared. No amount of phone calls or emails or Skype compared to us being in each other's presence. Being each other's presence. And nothing else can take the place of presence. Nothing can take the place of presence, not gifts, not telephone calls, not Skype, not pictures, not mementos. Nothing can take the place. And, and for any of those who are here today, if you have lost a lifelong spouse, probably more than you missing conversation with them, you just miss their presence or a lifelong friend. You just miss their sim- the simplest simplicity, simplicity of their presence. And When we are ill, if we're ill, if we're at at the hospital, more than flowers or more than conversation, we just appreciate the presence of our loved ones there sitting next to us. They don't have to say anything to us. But when somebody shows up and they, 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 they are there with you in the midst of your pain or suffering or your illness, that means everything, doesn't it? And what makes life and what makes shared experiences in life, such as a walk in the park, or going to a concert, or going to to play a game, or going on vacation, or just some sort of outing, or having dinner. What makes those type of things most meaningful and enjoyable is the presence of those you love so much. It's the presence of people you care about. Nothing replaces presence. And for the last three months, you've you've been going to church online. But nothing replaces your physical presence here. Nothing replaces that. And God has made us this way because he himself is personal and a relational God. And from the very beginning, unlike any other creature that he created on earth, he created Adam and Eve in his very image so that he could have communion with them, have fellowship with them, because he is a relational God. And if we recall, on, on week one, we talked about the fellowship that has always always existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That even God himself, there is unity in Trinity. And we've been called into this fellowship with him. There are many scholars who believe that... When God breathed life into Adam, not only did he breathe physical or mental life, but he he also breathed spiritual life into him. Some scholars say that he actually breathed the Holy Spirit into him. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, but we do know Adam was perfect. He had perfect fellowship with God. He had no sin, and he had perfect fellowship in the very presence of God. God would, in the garden, in the cool of the the day, walk with Adam. He would be in his very presence. And by the fall, through disobedience and sin coming into the world, not only did we lose our vision of God, that is, we now have a distorted view of who God is, what his nature is, and his relationship to us, but now we have lost relationship and consequently his abiding presence with us. More than a distorted view of God, what was the greatest tragedy was the removal of God's presence in Adam and Eve's life. And there are, removed from the garden and now through sin, by sin, all these things come into the human existence. And where once there was a harmonious fellowship, now sin has caused spiritual death and the departure of Of God's presence in the life of man and what we will emphasize here today is the fulfillment of the new covenant that the fulfillment of the new covenant which is alluded to in reference in Jeremiah 31 we will see that the fulfillment of the new covenant is the restoration of God's presence in his people through Jesus Christ Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham, when God made a covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis, he said, through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And and in the very beginning of Acts, Peter references this very scripture and says, through Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, through the absolvement of your iniquity and your debt that you owe towards the Lord, Through this, this is the blessing that has come to all nations. Faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not just forgiveness of sins. It is the restoration of the very presence of God in man. This is the glory of the new covenant. And we will look at that in greater depth at the last half of this message. But I want to backtrack a little bit and look at God's interaction and his presence in Old Testament Israel. And it will, it will make much more sense and make you much more thankful and grateful for his abiding presence in your life as a new covenant Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ. So I just want to, here for a little while, set this up. We will eventually end up in John chapter 14. But um, in regards to the presence of God and his interaction with Old Testament Israel, through this study I've been reading different authors, different books, I especially appreciate Gordon Fee, who is actually a Pentecostal theologian, and sadly, there's not a lot of Pentecostal theologians. Um, and I really appreciate Gordon Fee. He's actually Assembly of God, and um, he has some wonderful uh, books and commentaries, and I've greatly benefited from him. But but he he says that the theme of God's presence is crucial in both Old Testament and the New Testament. As a matter of fact. The presence of God serves as bookends to the Christian Bible. When you look at Genesis 2 and 3, God's presence is there amongst humans, amongst Adam and Eve. At the very beginning, he's he's interjected himself into the human experience and made himself known. And then you see at the very end, in Revelation chapter 21, that when we do stand in the very presence of God, With a glorified body, when all things have come to pass, John the Revelator says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. I saw no temple. I saw no shadow. I saw no symbol. I saw no... uh, alternate formation of who God was, I saw the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The very presence of God is there at the very end. And if we're going to understand the presence of God in relation to Old Testament Israel, it's oftentimes, it oftentimes revolves around the temple and tabernacle of Israel, which makes this Revelation 21... Uh, what we just read makes it pretty significant. There's no temple there. The very presence of God is there at the very end. But when it comes to God's dealing with Old Testament Israel, God's presence was manifested primarily through the temple or the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the temporary uh, tent, if you will, uh, where God's presence would uh, would descend. The temple was the permanent dwelling place or, or, or thing that they had made. And when we look throughout the Old Testament, we see God's descent of his presence in the tabernacle. And as a matter of fact... The, God's presence on the tabernacle is the structural key to the book of Exodus, Gordon Fee tells us. If, if I can just remind you, when, when Moses, who is an Israelite, he is a Hebrew, he's raised by uh, uh, the king or the pharaoh of Egypt, he, he, he murders a, an Egyptians, Egyptian slave driver, then he, he has to go into the wilderness, into the desert, and for 40 years he lives in the wilderness. He lives in the desert. And he finds a a wife, he has a family, and after 40 years being on the other side of the desert, God reveals himself to him in a burning bush. And, And what does God say to him? He says, Moses, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the true living God who was revealed and made a covenant with your father Abraham and I'm revealing myself to you and I'm going to use you as a deliverer of my people from the Egyptians. And I want you to bring the people back here to Sinai, which is where the burning bush was, was seen, and we're going to, you're going to bring the people back here and you're going to worship me. And we see in Exodus chapter 19 where Israel arrives at Mount Sinai and the, the glory of God descends upon the top of this mountain with great thunderings and clouds and lightnings and it's a terrifying, terrifying sight and experience for everyone looking on. For everyone that is there, the, the, the terror of the Lord descends upon this mountain and no person and no creature can touch the mountain because if they did, they would die. And his unapproachable glory descended upon this mountain. And only one man, one mediator could go up this mountain and commune with God. And Moses went up into the very presence of God. His manifest presence, his glory descended upon this mountain. And he was there in the presence of God receiving instruction and guidance and receiving the covenant that he would give through Moses to the people. But we know what happened when Moses came down, don't we? The terrible rebellion and tragedy of the people becoming impatient, stiff-necked and rebellious and backslidden. And they created a golden calf and they began to worship this golden calf. And God brought, brought judgment against them. But God's desire and God's plan, his desire was to move from the mountain and dwell amongst the people in the tabernacle. But before Moses came down, as I just said, they backslid, and God becomes extremely angry. And he says, I'm going to let you go to the promised land, but my presence is not going to go with you. My presence is not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel instead. I'm going to send an angel instead of my very presence because I'm going to judge you and damn you because you are a stiff-necked people. And I know you're going to rebel against me on this journey, and I'm afraid I'm going to destroy you. But Moses, he he mediates and he intercedes for the people. And as opposed to an, how many of you would like an angel to lead you on your daily? I would love an angel. I'll take an angel. My goodness, that's a supernatural help of the Lord. I surely would take the aid of an angel, but Moses says, no, no, I, I can't settle for an angel. Here, here's, here's what Moses says to him. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? I will not know that I have grace in your sight except that your presence dwells among us. So we shall be separate, your people and I from all the people who are upon the face of God the earth. And God consents and he says, I will go with you. He reveals himself in Exodus chapter 34. He reveals his character. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes before him, declares who he is, what his nature is. And then, and then in um, uh, Exodus chapter 40, the, the finalization of this all, they, they build the tabernacle per uh, God's instructions and the glory of God descends upon or over the tabernacle and it fills the tabernacle. This manifest presence of God comes and fills the tabernacle. And from there going forward, at the very end of Exodus chapter 40, it says, and the cloud of God manifested, or the manifest presence of God representing a cloud would would come and fill the tabernacle. And whenever... God wanted to lead them away. He would come up and his, his presence would come up above the tabernacle. And during the day, it would be a pillar of cloud that would lead them. His very presence would lead them. And during the night, it would be a pillar of fire. And it was his presence. And whenever he wanted them to stop somewhere, his presence would stop. And then they would, they would put together the tabernacle. And he would descend back upon the tabernacle. And this is where man met God. The very presence of God. And more than the law which was given, you can read throughout uh, Leviticus, the, 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 the stringent law that God gave to his people, or any other identity markers, such as circumcision or food laws and Sabbath observances, regardless of what made them different from all the pagan nations around them, what made them most different was that the presence of God was with them. That's what distinguished them from every other people group around them. It wasn't necessarily circumcision. It wasn't necessarily dietary laws and ceremonial laws. It wasn't necessarily Sabbath observance. It was the presence of God that distinguished them from every other people. But we sadly know the history of Old Testament Israel, don't we? And sadly, they forfeited God's... Presence And understanding how that God manifested his presence among them makes the exile from Jerusalem to Assyria and Babylon all the more bleak and tragic. That the temple was destroyed, the temple that Solomon built, the temple that was more glorious than anything, the temple that was built during the golden age of the, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel, built by Solomon, where as, just as in Exodus chapter 40, uh, the presence of God filled this temple. Now, because of their backsliding and their departure from God's uh, covenants and his, his will for their lives, now he brings judgment upon them. And in 586, that temple is destroyed. It's gone. And with it, the representative presence of God. Yes, you were a Jew by race. Yes, you had the law. Yes, you had all these things. But oh, where is the temple? Where is the presence of God? Granted, the Holy Spirit would, would be with some, but some of the time... Granted, God would, would lend his Holy Spirit to people and, and help them and come upon them and use them for mighty feats, to use, uh, th- to use um, themselves for mighty feats for God. But nobody ever had the, the dwelling presence of God in their midst that stayed there. And the poignancy of it all finds its ultimate symbolic expression in Ezekiel 10 where just as with the ark which had been taken by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4, the phrase, the glory of the Lord has departed because the temple had been destroyed. And although the second temple was built after, the ex- after 70, day, uh, 70 um, years, the exiles uh, by decree of Cyrus had gone back and Ezra and Nehemiah, they built the walls, they built the temple. It was never restored back to its former glory. And yes, God was with his covenant people, but there was still an expectation of a greater glory, a greater experience of God's presence to come into Israel. And that's where we find our scripture in Jeremiah 31. All is not lost because this is a purely messianic text, a purely messianic prophecy from Jeremiah 31. He declared that a new covenant was coming. Wherein God would not just give them the law on stone tablets, but he would put his law in their mind and write it on their hearts. And no more shall every man teach his brother, for they shall know me. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. I will put my very presence not on a temple, not on a geographical place. I will dwell in them. This is the mark of the new covenant. This is the mark of the messianic age and what the Messiah will usher in for God's people. It will be the restoration of God's presence, not in the corporate people, but in the individual to the point that I won't have to tell you what's right and wrong. It will be written upon your heart because God will dwell in men's hearts. John tells us in 2 John, You have no need that any man teach you because you have an anointing. That is, you have the Holy Spirit in you, written upon your heart, there with you. But what's what's wonderful is that Ezekiel takes this prophecy even further. And he takes hold of this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel expressly links links this prophecy to the Spirit's work whom God was going to put within his people. And he says in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. I read the first week this quote from Meyer Perlman. Here's what Myerl Perman said. He said, the Trinity is an eternal fellowship, but the work of man's redemption called forth its historical manifestation. Jesus has always existed as the Son, or the Son has always been. In, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But the Word never existed as Jesus in the flesh until the Incarnation in a historical exhibition of the Godhead, the Son becomes flesh and dwells among us. And the Holy Spirit, His activity has been throughout all of human history and throughout creation in the universe. We're going to see here in a moment, He Himself is poured out in a historical manifestation as He follows the work of the Messiah. And so we know that Jesus He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he had the spirit without measure. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with him and gave him the understanding at the age of 12. I must be about my father's business. At his baptism, when he's about to embark upon his public ministry, how does the Holy Spirit appear? It it appears in the, the form of a dove and takes bodily form in a dove and comes upon Jesus. And the father speaks, this is my son in whom I am well Please And by the Spirit of God, he is, he is uh, drawn to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he overcomes this temptation, quoting the word of God, which has been written by the Holy Spirit. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, it tells us in Luke chapter 4, 14. And he went there and taught in their synagogues. And to cap it off, He he went to his home place in Galilee, he took out the scroll uh, that is of Isaiah, and he began to speak these words to recognize himself as the Messiah and allowing him to embark upon his place therein. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus, fully God, yet fully man. He relied upon the strength and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And everything he did, he did in dependence upon the Father and by the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit to walk in his messianic call. And it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that he went to the cross. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit, which was the quickening agent, which rose Jesus from the dead on the third day, which also dwells within you. But oh, I am so thankful for the very last event. I am thankful here today more than ever for Jesus' ascension. We have Easter wherein we celebrate his resurrection. We have Christmas wherein we celebrate his birth. But we ought to celebrate his ascension. Because when Jesus ascended, he exercised the great prerogative given him as Messiah, sending the Spirit, the same Spirit that he operated in, his divine prerogative as the Messiah was now to send the Spirit down as He went up. Thus we read not only of the gift, but the communion of the Holy Spirit. That is, partaking in common of the privilege and blessing of having the Spirit of God given to us. Meyer Perlman says it this way. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. It is not only fellowship of believers with one another, but also with Christ. They received the same anointing as He did. It is like the precious anointing on the head of Aaron. Aaron was the brother to Moses. He was the high priest of the Levitical priesthood. The same oil that was anointed on the head of Aaron that flowed down his beard and descended even to the skirts of his garments. All the members of Christ's body, you and me, as a kingdom of priests, partake of the anointing of the Spirit flowing from the head, which is Jesus Christ our great high priest who has passed into the heavens. The same anointing poured upon the head of Jesus as our high priest. It goes all the way down to his feet and trickles down into your life. That is the blessing of the ascension. He said it is beneficial. It is good that I leave because if I do leave, I will send the helper, the comforter. The parakletos is the Greek word. And so, just to summarize this and bring this full circle, circle, Jesus is as Moses, who alone can approach the holy mountain of God as the mediator between us and God. But not only has he gone up, he has taken us up with him on his shoulders. And I can stand in the presence of God based upon what Jesus has done and his merit and not my own. And not only that, but Jesus is the word which became flesh. And in John chapter one, it says, and he dwelt among us. You know what that word dwelt mean? He tabernacled among us. It's a direct allusion to Exodus and the tabernacle wherein the very presence of God descended upon this tabernacle in Exodus. And now the very presence and power of God dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ and it is now through faith in him that the Holy Spirit comes to regenerate to indwell us and to clothe us with power from on high because now you are God's holy temple wherein the presence of God can dwell isn't that beautiful And so, let me speak in practical terms and apply this to your very life. I want to make you aware of what, act, what you have access to in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This very moment. Go to John chapter 3 very quickly. I'm going to read it really quick, but I want you to see it for yourself. I don't think I have it up there. But John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to, the Pharisee comes to Jesus at night. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, verse five, unless one is born of water and the spirit This is a smart guy. He's a Pharisee. He knows the law, forwards and backwards. He knows all the prophets. Jesus answered and said to him, verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What do you mean I need to be born again? What does that mean? And Jesus says, Are you not a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? I would imagine in Jesus' mind, he's thinking, Have you not read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34? Have you not read Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27? Have you not seen... By the Spirit of God, the prophets have spoken of a new covenant wherein He would put His Spirit within people and He would give them a new heart. Have you not seen this? Have you not understood this, teacher of Israel? And I'm telling you, you must be born again of the Spirit. You must be born from above. You must be born again. And Jesus makes this direct link to the Spirit of God. You cannot be born again except by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Me and Kenny and the kids were at the drive-thru of the snow cone place the other day. We were at Frosty Fountain. We all had a snow cone. But while we're there in the drive-thru, it's windy that day. And we're sitting there and there's a small tree that's right there in the driveway, near, near the driveway. And Oliver, just making observation, he goes, Daddy, the tree is dancing. And the the tree is sitting there shaking, and I don't see anybody around the tree. I don't see any animal. I don't see a person. I don't see anything, you know, a a car going past the tree. It's just sitting there shaking. It's dancing. What is it? It's the wind. Do I see it? Do I know from which direction it's coming, just observing that tree? No. But I see the effects of it outwardly. It's dancing, as Oliver said. And that's how the Spirit comes. He comes upon a heart in the invisible recesses of your life where nobody can see and nobody knows what you've been through. Nobody knows the sin of your life, but he comes and he moves within and he, by his power, And by his wonderful gentleness, he exchanges your heart of stone and exchanges it for a heart of flesh. And now he lets you love the things you used to hate and hate the things you used to love. And not only has has he just forgiven you of sin, he has made you a new creation because he has given you a new heart. That is a supernatural work of the presence of God in your life and you don't know exactly you can't see it but you will inevitably see its manifestation in your life that by repentance and by the power of God I will turn the other direction and then the fruit of the spirit will be developed in my life and by my fruits I'm known the spirit of God is living and dwelling within me and he has changed me he's turned my life around Many of us here today, we would be totally unrecognizable to the church if we were presented to this congregation in our, as our life before Christ. That's the transformation power of the Holy Spirit, that when you, by faith, trust in Jesus, He sends the Holy Spirit as His agent to come and clean your heart of the filthiness of sin and turn your mind around. And renew your mind and transform your mind. He will give you a new heart. He will allow you to be born from above. And the old man will die and be crucified with Christ. Every single one of you have attended your own funeral. If you are a Christian here today, you have attended your own funeral. And if you haven't attended your own funeral, you're a dead man walking. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But if you have come... If you have come to saving relationship with Jesus, when you believed upon Him, your old man was crucified with Him, and when you got baptized, it was a public transformation. That man is dead, and when I go down into this watery grave, I'm going to come up in newness of life and be identified and associated with my Lord Jesus Christ. He's no longer there. He's dead. The old Stephen is gone. The old Seth. The old Lauren is gone. He's given me a new heart. More than the forgiveness and absolvement of your sin, he has flooded your life with his very regenerating presence and power. So that you're now, your spirit can cry out, Abba, Father. Some of you right now, I see tears in your eyes right now because it's the witness of the Holy Spirit within you saying, oh, I've done that in your life. I've transformed you. I've forgiven you. And the love of God that you have and the Spirit that dwells within you is crying out, All but Father, All but Father. When you are worshiping here today and you had tears streaming down your face and you had joy coming out of your heart and the great peace in worshiping Him, that's because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And it's the Holy Spirit witnessing with your own spirit, I am God's. I'm a child of God. He lives within me. He lives within me. He's turned my life around. I'm not who I used to be. And it's not just something in my head that I acknowledge on a page. He has come and he assures me by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And he seals me with his ownership. And the very Holy Spirit is a guarantee. Reread in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a guarantee. It's a foretaste. It's an earnest payment by God to say, oh, this is what you're going to experience in absolute fullness when you stand with me face to face. There's not going to be a temple. It's going to be the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb who was slain for you. You're going to be in the very presence of God and the Holy Spirit within you right now crying out, Abba, Father, He's the Holy Spirit of promise. And he is your guarantee of the inheritance until you are finally once and for all saved. That is, you're in heaven. And until then, he makes, gives you every assurance that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are helped, that you will be led and directed and guided. I'm so thankful I'm so thankful that it wasn't just my acknowledgement of his, his, his word upon a page, but he actually supernaturally sent his Holy Spirit to forgive me. And even before you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit was working upon you. And even right now, I don't care if you have an unsafe spouse or parents or classmates or coworkers or friends, the Holy Spirit is actively desiring to penetrate their hearts. John Wesley had a phrase which is coined in methodism called prevenient grace. That is the holy spirit offers a grace and allows the sinner who's dead in their trespasses and sins allows them to believe when they don't even have power in themselves. That's the activity of the holy spirit. He's working on people's lives. You may not see it like you don't see the wind, but he's working. He's moving. And he can use your life to minister to the needs around you. The Holy Spirit is at work right here, right now. Don't sell yourself short of what he wants to accomplish in your life and how he wants to make himself known to you. That's just his regenerating power. Then he comes and he takes residence in our lives. Go to John 14. You're in John 3, but go to John 14 very quickly. I'm going to wind this up here very soon. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. If you're a child of God, you're not an orphan. It doesn't matter what your biological past is in regards to parents, regards to father and mother. If you are in Christ, you are no orphan. Jesus has come to you by the Holy Spirit, which he calls here the helper or the comforter. And in the Greek, it is the parakletos. The parakletos, he's one who's called alongside you to help you, to comfort you, to give you an aid to be your tutor, to lead you into all truth. He will give you divine strength that is needed and will enable you to overcome trials and tribulation and persecution. He will be a comforter, a helper, a counselor, a teacher. You have your own personal assistant, your own personal helper who dwells within you and comforts you and helps you and leads you into all truth. And Jesus said it's going to be another helper, meaning one like me, one who's different but like me, one besides me and in addition to me, but one just like me. He will do in my absence what I would do if I were physically present with you. And that's what makes the ascension such a wonderful event for a new covenant Christian. Very quickly, Steve, come help me, please. The Holy Spirit, he comes to regenerate and now he comes to dwell within us. And and Jesus gives in his upper room discourse in in John 14, 15, 16, he gives a beautiful picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. He says that the the Holy Spirit will be the spirit of truth indwelling us. No one will have to teach you the truth because it will be within you. You will have a teacher within you and he will lead you into all truth. He will be the teacher of truth all things. How many of you face, you face challenges in life, you face questions and you need guidance and direction in your life. How do I speak to this person? What decision do I make? Do I take this job or not? Do I deal with this issue in this manner? How do I deal with this issue? He will teach you in all things. He will lead and direct you and guide you in all things. He's one in John fourteen twenty six who reminds us of all Christ. Has said he will bring to your remembrance what Christ has said and what he has done for you. In John 15, 26, he is one who will bear witness of Christ. If he does one thing he does more than anything else, he will make Jesus more real to you. He is one who will glorify Jesus, taking what is his and declare it to us. The Holy Spirit takes residence in your life. And he gets behind a podium, and his message is Jesus. Jesus. He'll lead you into all truth. And he doesn't speak on his own authority because there is a willful submission and a deference to the Son of God. And he only speaks when he hears the Son speak. And he points us to Jesus. He points us to Jesus. That's why this must be a Christ-centered church. But spirit empowered power as we are presented to the Father. And Not only this, but because we are children of God, he continues to sanctify us and correct us and deal with us and root things out and make us holy. Make us holy. He is the Holy Spirit. He's come to make you Christ-like. And you cannot do this in your own strength, your own power, your own might. You cannot save yourself. You cannot keep yourself. It's all a work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, right now you have access to the greatest amount of power that has ever existed on planet earth. And each of you individually possess or have access to this power by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not even talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet. This is what every single believer has. And furthermore, when we're clothed with power from on high, we are given the proper equipping to go and minister and be bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. But every single Christian has this wonderful privilege of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Would you stand with me? I want you to know that the Holy... Play for me, please. The Holy Spirit, this is very important. The Holy Spirit is not divisible. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not divisible. Kimmy doesn't have 60% of the Holy Spirit. Wade doesn't have 40%. Because I'm the pastor, I don't have 98%. When you become a Christian, he gives you all of himself. You have 100% of the Holy Spirit. He's not divisible. You don't get portions of him. He gives you all of Him. Self. But the greatest question and the more crucial matter is this not how much of the Holy Spirit do you possess, you possess all of Him, but how much of you does the Holy Spirit possess? How much of you is He allowed? To lead and to direct and to God and have lordship over in every decision that you make, everything that you do, every place you go, every word you speak, his intention is that you would be so sensitive to his voice that you would be a proper representative of the kingdom of God. You have all the Holy Spirit does he have all of you. And truly, till the day that I die or the rapture come, there's more and more for me to give to him more and more. There's more pride there. There's more insecurity. There's more sin. There's more things he's going to root out of my life that would be a hindrance in my walk with him. He's going to root it out. If I will make myself subject to his power, he will do that work. And so my exhortation for you here today and what I would like for us to emphasize when we go here to prayer is that when you come down to prayer here today, I want you to say, Holy Spirit, just increase my awareness of your nearness in my life. This is a reality declared to us in the Word of God. It's a reality in our lives right now. He is near because He lives in you. And make me more sensitive and responsive to your voice and your leadership. That's God's desire. Would you just lift your hands right now? Would you open yourself open? up to the Lord let him speak to you this very moment would you just I I don't care if you feel anything or not this is not about feelings you you step out in faith You, you, you become honest with yourself you become honest with the Lord you bear your heart open to him he will move in your life he will stir you up he will give you a special assurance of his presence in your life I promise you he will we don't walk by that feeling all the time We may not always feel like He's close, but we know by the truth of the Word and by faith, He is there at all times. It's our desire here today, God, that we would have a greater sensitivity, a greater awareness of Your nearness in our lives. Make us subject. Make us good students. And You as our teacher here today, help us, Jesus, to be concerned with Your kingdom, to be sensitive to Your voice, and and to, to, to push out all the other voices and influences in our lives. Help us to turn off the news if we need to turn off the news or the phone or whatever it is and make us alert and responsive to what you were saying, Holy Spirit. We cannot do anything in our lives individually or on a corporate level except by your Spirit. Make us more convinced of that more than ever here today Lord help us Father help us